Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes, joined by my colleague, Will Salatan. Happy Monday, Will. Thank you, Charlie. And it is a happy Monday. It has been so long. I feel like it's, there's so much that has happened since we've done this podcast. Certainly a lot has happened since you and I did the podcast last Monday. So what was the most surprising thing that happened in the last seven days? Okay, go. Uh, the election turned out better than I expected. <laughs> well, like, okay, yeah. So look, Charlie, for, I am I am a weird person. I, I am an optimist, as you know. I'm a Pollyanna. I always yeah, think things will turn out the pony. better than they actually will. And this is the first election I can remember where I way, way underestimated how things would go. So I am discovering what it is like to be, I guess, like you, to be a mm. pessimist and to be pleasantly surprised. Uh, I am just baffled by this universe we're living in, in which Democrats did much better than the in the election than I expect. So what was this election about? I mean, I, I'm, I'm making a short list of, of things that I think are pretty clear rejection of extremism, a rejection of election denialism. It was also about abortion. It was also about Donald Trump. Ultimately, voters were pissed off about inflation. They're concerned about a lot of things, crime. But when it came right down to it, they decided they were more scared of Republicans, weren't they? Yeah, I, I do not have a simple answer for you, no. except I think that there were a, some negative forces interacting here. And I think that it, there was like one layer that the Republican Party, that the Republican leadership understood, which was that voters were unhappy with the conditions of the economy, with the direction of the country was going in, with some Biden policies. And so that was real. That actually happened. And then there was this other layer of, we don't like that stuff, but we don't like these crazy people on the right either. And we're not going to vote for them or enough people decided they weren't going to vote for them. And I think that second layer is what's baffling to the Republican party as it's trying to sort out what happened in this election. But I think that accounts for the difference. They're going to be doing a lot of sorting out for some time because it's very clear that they haven't really figured out what happened. And so they're engaging in what most political parties engage in after they've had a surprising loss, which is uh, finger pointing, <laughs> blame casting, uh, excuse making. I had some hot takes this morning. We can come back to them maybe a little bit later. But my hot takes uh, to start off your week, um, I think whatever happens with the House, and I think it looks like the Republicans are going to you know, will take control by, you know, one, two, three, four seats. Whatever happens, last Tuesday destroyed Kevin McCarthy. I mean, it's just a matter of playing it out. If they if they win, assuming that they win, it's going to be a narrow dysfunctional majority. So he's either going to be defeated or humiliated. And whichever option he chooses, he'll do it in the most dishonorable way possible. <laughs> it's hard for me to see how Kevin McCarthy achieves his dream of being a speaker who actually still has his testicles intact. It, maybe that wasn't his dream, but I just, I just don't see how it happens. I agree with you. I don't think there is a scenario in which Kevin McCarthy controls the House of Representatives, right? That's what given, I mean, yeah. Given numbers, yeah. So, so totally agree with you there. And it's almost like, I, I mean, I'm sorry for the rest of us, but for Kevin McCarthy, if God looked down on Kevin McCarthy and said, what is the worst thing yeah. I can do to this guy? It is, I'm going to give him his wish that he's always wanted of having the official power over the House of Representatives. He'll get to call his paw. Speaker, yeah. And I'll yeah. make it hell for him. I'll make it absolute torture every day because, in fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and those types will actually be running the House. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be gelded by the nutcase caucus. And, <laughs> and, and until the point where he draws a line, if he ever does draw a line, um, in which case he's going to be declared a cuck and a, and a rhino and, and, and tossed out. Um, 
At the same time, one of my other hot takes, um, I'm kind of just throwing these up against the wall at the moment, is that Donald Trump is, once again, destroying the Republican bench. It really strikes me, looking at the results of the last week, how strong suddenly the Democratic bench looks, whether you're talking about, you know, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Mayor Pete obviously has been around, you know, the new governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, uh, Josh Shapiro from Pennsylvania, Jared Polis from Colorado. The Democrats have a kind of a, a robust next generation base. At the same time, one of the things that Trump is doing is he's destroying his own party's bench in two ways. One, by overtly going out and I'm going to destroy Ron DeSantis, I'm going to destroy Glenn Youngkin. And number two, though, saying, if I don't destroy you, you're going to have to, you know, bend over and, you know, kiss the ring and embrace these electorally fatal election lies and extremist policies as, as, as the price of, of his favor. So he really is you know, just hanging on this party. And we can talk about, you know, whether he's going anywhere. But in, in terms of the benches, I think this was one of the problems that the Democrats had. They didn't have a bench. I think they have a bench right now. And I'm having a hard time seeing the Republican bench out there at the moment. What do you think? I agree with that. And there, I think there's some structural reasons for it. Um, l- let me say, first of all, this whole thing where Trump goes after tries to destroy any Republican who could be a threat to him, who might emerge as a as a future star, i.e., you know, the bench, the higher level of the bench. This just reminds me so much of a Greek myth. So is it Kronos who eats his children? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, the, the prototype, the myth is the guy who like kills his children, eats his children, whatever, and then the 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 mother has to somehow save the children from him. But the I think I don't I I need to get some Greek mythology lessons, but if you are one of the surviving offspring, if you don't get eaten, you need to kill this guy before he kills yeah, all true. of the other kids, right? So DeSantis or somebody else somehow needs to emerge to stop Trump from doing this. Uh, or somehow there has to be some gang attack because I thoroughly agree. Trump is a narcissist who he will try to extinguish any threat to him from within the Republican Party. So and he, he doesn't care who he hurts. He's basically saying, look, uh, it's either me or I burn down the house. I mean, that's the ace, you know, asymmetric threat. The Republican Party can't destroy Donald Trump, but Donald Trump can very easily destroy the party. Yeah, he's prepared to do it. He said, I don't care who I attack, uh, what career I destroy. I don't care what damage I cause because it's all about me. And he's taken the measure of Republicans and known that they have caved into that threat for the last six years. And he's thinking, why should we expect them not to cave in again? And I'm not sure he's wrong. Well, Republican cowardice is actually a huge lesson from this election, and and it will determine the future of this. I'm reminded of, was it Winsome Sears, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, who said, said, you know, Trump, you know, he sort of needs to step aside. She says a true leader understands when he's become a liability. Duh. And the fact that this guy doesn't understand when he's become a liability actually, as you're pointing out, doesn't care that he's become a liability. It tells you that he is not a true leader, right? He is he is not someone who is trying to build a, a party, trying to build a movement. He's trying to consume it and make it somehow fuel his own his own ambitions. But but we should talk about what you just said about the cowardice of the party, because I think that's where this party's going. Again, it's also that calculation that he's got 30% of the Republican base. And if he decides to take his ball and go go home, um, they're screwed. And so they're in this position where they, they're now realizing after last Tuesday they cannot win with him, but they also 
are afraid that they can't win without him. And I'm sorry, you know, I'm going to restrain the sympathy here because this is the political prison of their own making. I mean, how many decisions led up to this fact that in many ways they're, they're stuck with him? Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate had multiple opportunities to rid themselves of this guy. They had all of these off-ramps. They didn't take it. And they always rationalized each kind of, you know, humoring a rationalization. And now they're looking around going, this guy is electoral freaking poison. And yet we have made ourselves hostage to him. Yeah, uh, they did make a calculation. So let's go back to after January 6th. So they're, get, they're presented with this opportunity in the impeachment uh, to to get rid of Trump, to make at least make it impossible for him to be president again. But they he still controlled the base, or as you're pointing out, a, a section of the base, right? And so they were essentially hostage to him. And the, the logic that a lot of Republicans, Republican leaders, elected Republicans, uh, expressed at that time about standing by Trump was that they couldn't win without him. They could not win without him. And not enough attention was paid to the other side of the question. Could they win with him? And so we're beginning to send a message through subsequent cycles, subsequent elections. You can't win with this guy. And honestly, Charlie, when you're dealing with cowards, that is the only way to get it through to them. They're only thinking about themselves. So you have to make it a losing proposition for them to stand by the authoritarian. Okay, so let's go through some of the audio from from the weekend. We are now getting the first glimpses of Mike Pence's new book. He rolled it out in an exclusive interview on ABC. And I want to play a clip, and, and just so people don't think that their device is malfunctioning, I think the most extraordinary thing about this clip is the pause. <laughs> I think it goes on for 10 seconds after Mike Pence is asked a pretty good question by ABC's David Muir. Let's play it. In the middle of it all, you can see that the president has tweeted. 2.24 p.m., the president tweets, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And Pence just sits there. Pause. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter who was standing nearby and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. Okay, well, that was, that's quite a moment. The former vice president just sits there and for 10 seconds says nothing. Where he's calculating, do I finally just say, yeah, I was angry about that? The guy, you know, put my my life at risk, <laughs> my family's life at risk. Okay, he he is saying these things. I wish he would have said it earlier. I wish he would have said it under oath to the January 6th committee. But Pence is like working through some stuff, isn't he? He is. I don't know what kind of therapy that you're supposed to go into when, when your boss tries to have you killed. Yeah. Um, but he's clearly been in it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad he's working his way through it. I do think that uh, in addition to the pause, there are two really salient things that he said there. One is he used the phrase break the law, right? He says to his, he said, I, he told his daughter, it doesn't take courage to, to break the law. Is he just talking about the crowd there? Because the context was what Trump tweeted, right? He was not asked about the crowd. He was asked about Trump and he talked about breaking the law. So let's just pencil that first as a, a, a hint that he understands that Trump broke the law. The other thing is he used the word decided. He said that Trump 
decided to be part of the problem. Now, the problem, as Muir is pointing out, is a physical violent assault on the capital of the United States. And if there's one thing that the January 6th committee established beyond any question, it is that during the attack, Trump was told what was going on, he was watching what was going on, and he refused to intervene. That is a deliberate decision. And when Pence uses the word decided, he is affirming that this was not Trump just not knowing what was going on, not Trump looking the other way. It was Trump making an affirmative decision to do something that, as Pence himself says, broke the law. Well, it's interesting, you know, in the last week, you know, watching the number of conservatives and Republicans who've been willing to uh, distance themselves from Trump. Of course, you know, we had the Murdoch newspapers or we have, uh, you know, some of the folks on, on Fox News beginning to push back this sense of, yes, it's time to, you know, turn the page. Look, none of this has anything to do with principle or conscience or revival of courage. It's just the the way that an electoral defeat and the prospect of losing power can marvelously focus the mind, right, Will? So I guess I guess the question is whether this makes a difference. Let's play a little bit more of the sound. This is um, outgoing Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan, who has been a pretty consistent Trump critic, uh, talking about three strikes and you're out, that maybe this is ah, the 186th opportunity for Republicans to break away from uh, Donald Trump. Let's play that. I think it's it's basically the third election in a row that Donald Trump has cost us uh, the race. And it's like, you know, three strikes, you're out. Well, do you think that's true? Because we've heard that after one strike and two strikes to keep your analogy going. Well, you know, the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different re result. And you know, Donald Trump yeah, he kept saying, and you know, we're going to be winning so much, we'll get tired of winning. I'm tired of losing. I mean, that's all he's done. And of course, there's a lot of that out there. And again, we've seen this over and over again, haven't we? I mean, they didn't break with him after Charlottesville. They didn't break with him after the insurrection. They didn't break with him after Helsinki. And yet hope springs eternal. Okay, can I just wallow in one particular moment here? Wallow away. Go ahead. Look, I, it feels redundant to you know, comment on how juvenile, inane, and offensive Donald Trump is. But you know, during his ketchup splattering on the wall tantrum at uh, Mar-a-Lago, after he, he you know ranted, you know his eighty-six part attack on Ron DeSantis, he took a break to uh, lash out at Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who apparently has been insufficiently deferential to him. I don't know what he said to trigger this, but he puts out a statement in which he says Youngkin sounds Chinese, doesn't it? Here's young kin. He breaks into it. Now, that's an interesting take. Sounds Chinese, doesn't it? And then he t basically claims credit for getting him elected. Who writes shit like this? I mean, seriously. Yeah. What grown-ass man says something that juvenile and inane who thinks that's funny or clever? And yet it's become kind of routine. And Larry Hogan was asked about this. Now, Larry Hogan's wife is Korean. So Dana Bash on CNN yesterday asked Larry Hogan about this particular, you know, brilliant jab from the former president. Well, it was definitely uh, distasteful and inappropriate, not only because uh, I don't think my friend Glenn Youngkin deserved to be attacked like that, but it was also, uh, I mean, it's Asian hate against a, a white governor, you know, and, and making fun of uh, Asians. And he didn't even have his nationalities right, because Young Kim would be Korean as opposed to Chinese, but uh, it's just more of the same from Donald Trump, insults and attacks. And that's one of the reasons why the party's in such bad shape. Is it racist? It is racist. Well, you know why Hogan said it was racist, Will? Why? Because it was. <laughs> it, it's so ridiculous. I mean, you know, 
part of the problem is I'm, you, you, you focus on the stupid or, or the racist. But, you know, the fact that he, there he is sitting there in brooding exile in Mar-a-Lago, and he goes, you know, Glenn Youngkin, what do I say about him? Youngkin, sounds Chinese. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of thing the writers of Beavis and Butthead would have thrown on, on, the, on the floor because they thought it was too stupid. Yeah, obviously it's puerile. This is, this is a juvenile thing that Trump does, but it's not just that, right? As you're pointing out, this is, this is just outright racism. This is just outright bigotry. This isn't critical race theory. This isn't some like debate about quotas and which way they cut and all that stuff. This is just using the ethnicity of people against them. Trump has done it to Mexican-Americans. He did it to Gonzalo Curiel, a federal judge. He's gone after Muslims. He's gone after black people. He's gone after Obama with, you know, he's really a Kenyan. And this is the second time in the last, what, two months that he's done it to Asian-Americans, right? He did that. He went after Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, who was Donald Trump's transportation secretary, never mind that, calling her Coco Chow, a China-loving <sighs> wife. So this is, an, this is a total pattern with Donald Trump. And the fact that we hear crickets, crickets from the Republican elite, crickets from so-called Republican leaders about this overt racism tells you about the depth of their cowardice, the depth of their indifference, and the danger that the Republican Party poses to every minority in this country if they will not stand up for you when this man goes after you. Well, this is an interesting point. And I've commented on this a couple of times on television. I mean, I was really struck in the weeks running up to the election, the way in which Republicans had really internalized the idea, really convinced themselves that nothing mattered, that there would be absolutely no consequences for any uh, any of this stuff. There would be no consequences for making a punchline about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's uh, husband. Uh, no consequences for pushing big lies about elections or election denialism. No pushback against Coco Chow or Trump's anti-Semitic rants because they figured the wind was at our back. We're going to win. So it doesn't matter. We will never be held accountable for all of this. And now there is this, you can see that looking at each other going, shit, you know, that kind of extremist rhetoric came back and bit us. Uh, that kind of stuff, you know, maybe suddenly they're understanding that maybe the rules of politics that they thought had been repealed are, are reasserting themselves. That gravity's a thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just, yeah. you know, that, that, that this stuff, they will pay a price for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Paul Pelosi episode, which was what, two weeks ago? I can't even remember. Yeah. It's not, not that long ago. Also, you know, that, that sort of drove home the unseriousness. I mean, I can't tell you how many people who I thought uh, were reasonable people on the right we're just joking about a hammer attack, that this is some secret gay lover thing. And none, I don't see any retractions. And they seem to just sort of brush this off. I think there's a sickness going around where people, some of these folks just can no longer tell the difference between something that is serious and something that is a joke. So Chris Christie, uh, who I, look, I hold him significantly responsible for the rise of Donald Trump. I, I still have it seared in my mind when he was standing behind Donald Trump, when he was the first reasonably normal Republican to endorse him. So I've, uh, I have a hard time coming around. Uh, and the, the notion that uh, Chris Christie can run for president seems um, more than a little fanciful. But he was, uh, he was on ABC yesterday talking about uh, Trump and making the case for why perhaps it's time to move on. He said we were going to do so much winning that we would ask him to stop winning. Well, in 2018, we lost the House. In 2020, we lost the Senate. 
In 2021, we lost two Senate seats in Georgia that we should have won. And in 2022, we performed under historic norms for what was going on in this country and for being the party out of power. That's a lot of losing. And I think what Republicans came to grips with Tuesday night was we're tired of losing and we're tired of Donald Trump dragging us to lose because of his personal vanity. Yeah, and this is the one thing that Donald Trump hates more than anything in the world, right, is to be called a loser. And can you imagine the meltdown if Kerry Lake loses? That, by the way, is the thing that blew me away the most because everybody had already anointed her as the MAGA queen and that she was running this fantastic campaign and, you know, she was going to be Donald Trump's running mate. If she actually goes down in Arizona, and that's still a, a, a big if, you know, that loser tag really starts to stick to, to MAGA. And in particular, it's just got to grind his gears that whatever you think of Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis was a huge winner last week. I mean, he just he just ran up the score. So this contrast yeah. between Ron DeSantis, huge winner, and Donald Trump, huge loser, on the eve of his own presidential restoration announcement has got to burn. Yeah, and, and the loser thing is actually really, really important. And, and this is a distinction I want. Uh, I mean, you and I, I think would agree, and a lot of folks would agree with us, that it's not like, we, we shouldn't expect people to change. We shouldn't expect Donald Trump to change who he is. He is who he is. We shouldn't expect Kevin McCarthy to change who he is. He is who he is. But, but, but Kevin McCarthy is not a fanatic, right? Re Republican leadership, they're not fanatics. They're cowards. And that is important. That is actually a world-saving distinction because a fanatic will do crazy stuff on his own. And there, there could be, you know, future episodes of election denial driven by fanaticism. I think Carrie Lake might be a fanatic. But the cowards who run the Republican Party, the National Republican Party, are doing what they're doing. They have moved over to Donald Trump's insanity. They have echoed his lies. They have gone along with his authoritarianism, not because they are crazy, but because they are cowards and they're cynics. So if you can show them through elections that Donald Trump is a loser and that he hurts them, their cowardice and their cynicism will turn the other way. They will turn against mm. you because all they care about is their party, their self-preservation, their power. And therefore, that, that is a way that we can get them out of the craziness. And I think, Charlie, that this election was the beginning or at least another, maybe another step toward bringing them out of, out of that insanity, appealing to their cynicism, appealing to their cowardice. You will lose if you stay with Trump and his insanity. I think that's the only way that they will change course is <clears throat> to appeal to their lust for power and uh, their cynicism. Okay, so anytime there is something like this, you go through the various stages of grieving, including denialism and forming circular firing squads and a variety of other cliches that I could use here. Right now, you are seeing much of MAGA world trying to change the focus of this defeat from Trump to Mitch McConnell, that Mitch McConnell is the bad guy. And by the way, I think Mitch McConnell doesn't have a lot of other people to blame other than himself, given the fact that he had a chance to rid himself of Donald Trump and chose not to do it. There's, there's certain ironies here. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but in terms of who's the most valuable player of the midterm elections, I'd nominate Samuel Alito. <laughs> and so Mitch McConnell's great legacy of flipping the U.S. Supreme Court is also the reason why he may never be majority leader. <laughs> so that's I I ironic. But here's um, Donald Trump's uh, immigration homunculus, Stephen Miller, on one of the shows blaming all of this on Mitch McConnell. If only Mitch McConnell had sent more money 
uh, to the deplorable Blake Masters in Arizona as opposed to Lisa Murkowski in, in uh, Alaska. Let's play that. The extraordinarily fateful decision on the part of the Senate Leadership Fund and Mitch McConnell to take the money that should have been spent in Arizona to get Blake up on TV early on and instead give it to Lisa Murkowski for a Republican battle against the Republican-backed nominee in Alaska. And if you want to find one state where that extra six to nine million dollars would have been the difference maker, that's it, Arizona. The disparity at the top of the ticket was crushing for our candidates. Yeah. Yeah. He sounds unhappy. Did did (laughs) you pick that up? Seems a little stressed. So Rick Scott, senator from Florida, real man of political genius, comes on after him and gives his critique of why he managed to crap the bed as the chairman of the Republican Senate campaign committee. Listen to Rick Scott's theory of the case. The Republican leadership caved in on the debt ceiling, caved in on a gun bill, caved in on a fake infrastructure bill, and that we make it difficult for our candidates. We can't, we can't do that. And we got to tell, we got to do exactly what Stephen Miller said. Give people something we're hell-bent on getting done and then fight for it. That's what we do in Florida, by the way. I did when I was governor. That's what's been happening since I left. That's why we have big wins in Florida, because we stand for something. Okay, so I'm going to give you this high lob. Rick uh, Scott saying we weren't extreme enough. Where do I begin with this guy? Uh, First of all, it's comical. His job, as you're pointing out, Rick Scott was the chairman of the NRSE. It was his job to elect these people. The idea that he comes out and blames Mitch McConnell is is just a masterpiece of, of lack of self-awareness. But in addition to this, it's kind of a clever thing they've come up with where they nominated terrible candidates. That's why they lost. You lose Senate races. House races, you can sort of go with sort of a national flow. People are unhappy with the Democrats. You can get a lot of your people elected anyway. In a Senate race, people actually look. They look, do I really want this guy? Do I really want Herschel Walker? Do I really want Dr. Oz? Do I really want Blake Masters? And a lot of people just decided, no, we don't want that guy. That guy's crazy. That guy's extreme. And so Mitch McConnell was the guy who had to say, this candidate is losing because he's too extreme. So we're going to move the money somewhere where we can actually win. And then it's genius, of course, for Stephen Miller to come along later and say, the fact that you move the money is the reason why this guy lost. No, no, Blake Masters lost on his own because he was nuts, because he was an election denier, et cetera. So yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And there are, Charlie, we could go into this. There are a hundred reasons, sorry, there are a hundred reasons why Rick Scott uh, is completely wrong in his new jihad against Mitch McConnell. Okay, we won't go through all hundred of them, okay? So, because that would that would take some time. But you know, I use the phrase I, I refer to the the right wing id. Um, you know, and, and sometimes I'll throw in the um, the entertainment wing of the Republican Party. But by focusing on the id, it's where is the energy? Where is the center of gravity of the right? And the reason why it's always important to identify that is because that is the direction that the party almost always goes. If you you find out what's going on in the fever swamps, wait a couple of weeks or months, and that will be what Donald Trump will push. That will be what um, the conservative firebrands will grab onto. And right now, as of Monday morning, the id of the right wing is all about delaying the leadership vote in the Senate to reelect Mitch McConnell. I kid you not. This is the this is where all of the passion and the outrage and the energy is going right now. And of course, for people to understand, 
the perpetual outrage machine has to constantly be fed. It has to constantly, you know, feel under threat, constantly feeling betrayed. That's how you raise money. That's how you you generate uh, energy. And so with a combination of Donald Trump's attacks on Mitch McConnell and these other attacks on Mitch McConnell, this is where the right is, you know, pushing a red wedding in the Republican Senate. So not only have the Republicans failed in their bid to take over the Senate, not only are they consigned to the minority again, they're about to have a real bloodletting. And this is not going to end anytime soon. I'm assuming, I don't know whether you agree with me, I'm assuming that Mitch McConnell survives, but um, a tremendous amount of Republican energy over the next year is going to go into uh, Republican on Republican uh, attacks. Who is who is uh, more extreme? Who's more loyal to Donald Trump? Who's a cuck? Who's a rhino? It's going to be ugly. Yeah, it is. And and for people who are looking at this, what's going to be a fight, but probably between McConnell and Rick Scott. I mean, it's been going on for a while, but now it will be in the form of a Senate leadership election. Uh, it, here's here's what how I understand it. Um, Basically, Mitch McConnell is right and Rick Scott is wrong. Rick Scott's diagnosis of the election, setting aside the fact that he screwed up as chairman of the NRSC, is he, he's claiming that Republicans needed more of an affirmative plan. Mitch McConnell played a cynical game. He said, look, we're the out party. We're just not going to talk about what we would do. Let voters be express their unhappiness with Biden and the Democrats, get our people elected, and then we'll go to work. But don't give them a target to shoot at. Don't give the other side a target. Rick Scott's idea was, no, let's give them a target. Rick Scott put out a plan, and part of his plan was, we're going to sunset. Yeah, we're going to sunset Social Security and Medicare. We're going to make the, the Congress vote on it all the time. And whether you, and which Democrats proceeded to attack. Rick Scott, during the election, provided a target for Democrats. So he was wrong about that. And now, in his post-election diagnosis, Rick Scott is saying, as you're pointing out, we should be hell-bent on, you know, just declare a bunch of stuff we're going to do. And, you know, what does the base want? We're going to fight them on the debt ceiling. We're going to fight them everywhere. And Rick Scott's thinking here is representative of this disease in the Republican Party. They don't pay attention to the negative side of the ledger. They don't pay attention to who they're alienating. They're only talking about who they're motivating on the right. But what happened in the election was Republicans had alienated a lot of people in the middle. Mitch McConnell understands this. It's why if Republicans are saying they'll keep McConnell as the majority leader, but Rick Scott is determined to sort of go down fighting over it. Yeah. And again, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be ugly and divided and, and yet waiting in the wings, of course, is the former president. I think that there was some vague hope for about five minutes that that uh, Donald Trump would not actually announce his candidacy tomorrow, that he might wait until after the runoffs in Georgia. There seems to be. Well, what, what do you think? I mean, does Trump go ahead and announce tomorrow? Well, Trump will do, of course, what is good for Trump. I, I think that Trump will wait a little bit. I think Trump will wait as late as he can and he will go right before he thinks somebody else might be about to announce. So you don't think he's going to announce tomorrow night? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's a bad environment for him to do it, but I, he's, you know, we'll see. Tim O'Brien, who, who knows Trump as well as anybody agrees with you, doesn't think he's going to go ahead with it. I am inclined to think that he will, because right now he desperately, desperately needs to change the narrative. That's number one. He desperately needs to reassert his dominance of the Republican Party. And at this point, not announcing tomorrow night looks like weakness. So he is going to lean into all of this. He's going to lean into this because he knows that every day that he doesn't, the chances are that he's going to be tagged with loser. And we know the extent, the links to which this man is prepared to go not to be considered a loser. So I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to jump in. 
And I think it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess for all of the Republicans because right now we're in one of those strange windows where Republicans want to move on with them. I don't know how long that's going to last, but you're right about the environment. I mean, you know, objectively speaking, this is a terrible time for him to jump in. And yet he needs to join this chorus that says, you see, I wasn't on the ballot and you lost. You need me to be on the ballot. And it's these other rhino cucks, the establishment, and we need to replace them. So I think what he's going to do is he's going to try to you know, reproduce that 2015, 2016. I'm the insurgent. I'm the outsider. I'm the guy who's going to burn it all down and hope to be able to capture that again and hope that the same people who caved last time will cave again this time. I think he's in tomorrow. You make a good argument. Any theory based on Trump's ego is a good theory. And yeah, the, right. the idea that he already said he would do it, and if he waits, it looks bad, that's a good point. However, from Trump's point of view, it's not crucial that he announced that he's running for president. What's crucial, if you understand Trump, is that he belittle, attack, tear down any potential rivals. So I think that yes. when Trump goes after DeSantis, goes after Yunkin and these other folks, that is, in effect, the Trump campaign. Trump is determined to. So, I mean, what you have to understand about Trump is he's remember, he's not interested in building anything and he doesn't actually have to win the general election, although that's the goal. What he really needs to do is to control the people around him, to control a political party or a faction. So if he can maintain his dominance of the Republican Party and he can perhaps do so just by tearing down, belittling, you know, DeSantis and the others, that's what he will do rather than particularly announce a presidential campaign. But Charlie, as we're discussing from the results of the election, Ron DeSantis has a better case than Donald Trump. And I'm just not convinced that Trump anymore has the ammo to fight off a DeSantis. Well, you know, something did happen over the weekend. And again, take it for what it's worth. You had the YouGov survey uh, finding that DeSantis is now in the lead among Republican or Republican-leaning voters. I mean, that had to be another catch-up-on-the-wall moment down in Mar-a-Lago, where DeSantis is now leading Trump by seven points. I think the last survey, he was behind by seven points. Look, I still think that, you know, Trump is a, a dominant figure, but Ron DeSantis has something that none of Trump's rivals in 2015 had. He has real cred with the Republican MAGA base. So it becomes more difficult for Trump to attack him. You know, Trump has figured I can destroy anybody. I just come up with a nickname or something. Um, I go after him and, 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 and they're gone. It is interesting that I think that the DeSantis is going to have a little bit more stickiness. And I'm just, this is, I'm, I'm not praising anyone. I'm just, you know, walking it through. And the fact that he won by such a big margin in the midst of all of these other failures makes that case pretty hard not to consider if you're in the donor class, the professional class, the consultant class, the lobbyist class of the Republican Party. Yeah, I think that's true. And and can we talk here on this point about the difference between Yunkin and DeSantis? Because sure. I think that's kind of relevant. Yunkin is was more of a sunny guy. I mean, he's 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 got he's playing to some of the culture war issues, but he's doing it in a suburban kind of way. DeSantis has something that Trump does, which is the anti-woke liberal tears thing. He really like sticks it to the libs. He really revels in it. And he makes a lot of right wing people feel like DeSantis is standing up for them in their war to to, you know, uh, celebrate the pain of the left. And so I feel like 
when what, what DeSantis is doing captures that thing, which is crucial to a lot of Trump supporters in a way that Youngkin doesn't. And it may be enough to get enough of the party to go with DeSantis against Trump. Okay, can I share with you some wonky numbers? Because I know you're kind of a wonky guy. Go for it. I actually mentioned this on Morning Joe this morning. I was going to write it up, but then I figured, you know, time, we, we, we have, we've, we've, moved, we've moved on. Um, I'm looking at the Trump effect in Wisconsin, which was, is so dramatic, especially with the reelection of our very boring, very non-charismatic Democratic incumbent. By the way, that's not a criticism. That's a sign of how remarkable it is. Tony Evers won re-election over a Trump-backed election denier by more than 90,000 votes, which in recent political history is a landslide. And he did so despite very disappointing turnout from the Democratic stronghold of Milwaukee. What he did was he turned the Madison area, Dane County, into this massive dynamo of, of voting. And he really has uh, cut into Republican margins in the suburbs. So this ongoing erosion in Milwaukee's suburbs of Republican support that began with Donald Trump um, is continuing. So it, it is it is remarkable. So, for example, now I, t- I promised it was going to be uh, wonky, right? So Dane County is Madison, Wisconsin. It's, it's probably the most liberal county in the state. Tony Evers, the Democrat, comes out of this one county with a 174,000 vote margin, okay? Mm-hmm. That is his margin is greater than the total vote cast in the 2002 gubernatorial campaign. Wow. The entire vote for governor was 172,000 votes back in 2002. Now Democrats are coming out with a margin of over 174,000 in one county. Okay, one more set of numbers. So Tony Evers wins by 90,000 votes by turning out a massive Democratic vote except in Milwaukee County, cutting into Republican margins in the suburbs. And he actually got 24,000 more votes than Ron Johnson, who was reelected. Which means that if Mandela Barnes or any other Democratic Senate candidate had gotten the same amount of votes that Tony Evers got, they would have won. They would have been elected to the Senate. So the Mm -hmm. Democrats did their job at the top of the ticket. In fact, however, Mandela Barnes got 51,000 votes fewer than Tony Evers. I'm just throwing that out there because mm-hmm. a lot depends on it. Hey, so um, in terms of number crunching, you did a really great deep dive for the bulwark over the weekend on the question of what was the Dobbs effect in this election and what was your conclusion? How important was abortion in the outcome of the 2022 midterms? Well, it was decisive. It was decisive in a lot of elections. And it wasn't just one. It wasn't just the network exit poll. It was the AP vote cast. These are massive, massive surveys of the electorate, enough that you have a sample in every state. Plus, you know, you pull it all nationally. And it drove up the intensity. So it did two things, Charlie. It persuaded some people, a lot of people who would might ordinarily vote Republican, people in sort of in the middle of the political spectrum, to, to vote Democrat. They voted for, you know, John Fetterman instead of Memedaz, for example. They voted for Kelly instead of Masters. And they so it changed some votes on the margins. But it also, Charlie, it brought people to the polls. So the big problem Democrats had, the big problem you have in the midterms, you're the in-party, your president's in power, people are unhappy with your president, you're just not going to turn out. The other side's angry, they're going to show up. And what Dobbs did was the polling showed that a lot of people who voted in the election said that they did so rather than not vote at all, rather than not show up, 
because of this issue. Now, let me just back up and say, if you are pro-life and you believe that every abortion is the taking of a human life and this has to be stopped, you, you're willing to say, okay, that is the political consequence of overturning Roe v. Wade. We did the right thing morally, you know, and every baby we can save is great. All right, I respect that as a, that's a moral point of view, but I'm just saying as a political fact, it is incontrovertible from the evidence in this election that Dobbs provoked a big backlash and it cost Republicans a lot of seats, seats in the House, seats in the Senate, governorships. Well, I agree with you on that analysis. So here's the next big question is, where does that go? What does that mean for 2024? How can Republicans scrape that off the bottom of their shoes? I don't think they have a great answer to this. They've got to figure out how to keep their base motivated, the people who are pro-life and, you know, want them to sort of, you know, look at Lindsey Graham, who had a, used to have a 20-week ban on abortion federally. That was his bill. And he, the, the pro-lifers come to him and say, hey, can we move it up? So now it's at 15 over the next decade, if they get a 15-week national ban. Anybody think they're going to stop at 15? Okay, but here's the most interesting question, because Lindsey Graham thought that he was bailing out Republicans with this, right? Because the 15-week ban is more reasonable than other bans, than the, you know, absolute bans, the six-week bans, et cetera, right? He figured 15-week ban, polls much better, it will make us look much extreme, my sense is that backfired very badly because it put this national ban on the agenda, right? So for, for Republicans who are internally saying, you know, the magic bullet is going to be 15 weeks with exception. That's how we get ourselves out of this corner. Well, the Lindsey Graham gambit didn't work. No, it, it didn't. It, it, it did a couple of things. Yeah, Graham thought it was reasonable. And all my pro-life friends were angry when I wrote about this because they said, hey, fifth, he's not banning abortion. He's just setting a reasonable national limit and then states can debate beyond right, that. Right. But when, when you nationalize this issue, it pisses people off. And it pisses people off in part because the whole you know spin around the Dobbs decision was we're sending this back to the people. The states can make their own laws. And then for the pro-lifers to come along after Dobbs and say, you know what? But in addition to that, we're going to pass a federal law that tells your state what its abortion limit has to be. That pissed a lot of people off, and it signaled that a bigger threat was coming. And in addition to that, Charlie, it's just anytime you come out with an affirmative push on an issue that's hot button, that pisses people off, you are courting trouble. And there were a lot. Mitch McConnell did not want to touch this issue. Again, Mitch McConnell was like, we're going to win this election. Sit back. Don't give the enemy a target. Along came Lindsey Graham, and he provided in this 15-week national limit an enormous target for the other side to shoot at. And it hurt Republicans. And I think it's going to continue to hurt Republicans unless they can figure out what to do, because obviously this will be a crucial issue in the presidential election in 2024. And we have no idea really what, what Donald Trump is, is going to say. We would just, I mean, we don't. I mean, he'll, you know, yeah. he can make it up on the spot. I certainly remember when he was here in Milwaukee back in 2016 and Chris Matthews asked him as well. So should, uh, you know, women in abortion, should they go to jail? And, and he answered, well, yes, there has to be consequences. And the thing was, you could tell looking at his face that he hadn't given five seconds thought to it at all. He just mm -hmm. sort of was going through what he thought a pro-lifer would say. And I'm not sure that he's given that much thought even since then. So what are you keeping an eye on this week, Will? This is a rather extraordinary week. A lot is going to be going on. We have a summit uh, in, in Asia, uh, President Biden talking to uh, President Xi. Um, we haven't, you know, apparently the Cold War is uh, has not been called off. Called off. Uh, we have these leadership elections. We'll find out exactly who controls the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. If the NBC projection is correct, and I don't know that it is, and the Democrats have 216, 
and the Republicans have 219. Leaving aside all the woulda, coulda, shouldas, all the things, you know, the races that were close that could have gone a different way, how do you even come close to running a House of Representatives with 219 votes when 218 is the majority? How do you even do that? Well, just, you know, among <laughs> it's going to be crazy. First of all, Charlie, you know, there are special elections that are going to come up and they're going to potentially flip the house during the cycle. I, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Some guy gets COVID. Somebody gets hit by a car. Think about it. I mean, things happen. People get indicted. They, they resign. They get jobs. They die. And if it's yeah. a one vote margin, it could be like, you know, flip, 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 flip. Yeah. So can I throw out an optimistic scenario here? I am willing to entertain that today. Because I feel like I have not produced my pony today. And so here, here's my my proposed pony. There is going to have to be, a, a hopefully there will be, uh, some kind of coalition on certain issues between the sane Republicans and the sane Democrats. I'm thinking of Ukraine at the moment, right? Yes. Um, so there is there's clearly a 200 if, if republicans have 219 or 220 seats in the house there is a hardcore pro-russia anti-ukraine anti-nato uh sub sub caucus on the republican side that in effect could throw the house and they'll have power over mccarthy i think mccarthy is a coward but he is not crazy on ukraine and and it is possible that a coalition of Republicans who are serious about standing up to Putin and Democrats who are obviously more serious about standing up to Putin can put together a majority. It is not a, obviously a partisan majority, and it's very tricky to see how this works, but it's going to be very important over the next year for those two factions to work together. They are a majority of the House, but they're not in the same party. That's going to be really difficult. Well, especially if McCarthy keeps the Hastert rule. And the Hastert rule basically is that nothing comes up for a vote unless a majority of the Republican caucus favors it. So it means that you can have really strong minority leadership. You have basically you know, one quarter of the House having a veto power over the entire House. Um, I think that would be unwise of him to do, but I don't know that he has any choice. I mean, look, if, if you have one or two majority, then think about it. Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, assuming that Lauren Boebert <laughs> actually survives, they walk into his office and they say, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and, and he has to do X, Y, and Z, doesn't he? I agree with you. I think what you just said about the Hastert rule is exactly on point. Yet we cannot, they, they will not be able to govern this way. Uh, if they try, it will be a disaster. And all they will be, the only issues they'll be able to focus on are basically messaging issues, sticking it to the lips. Any kind of government will be impossible. So in order to get anything done, the Republicans will have to work with some Democrats. Now, there's no guarantee they go down that road. Maybe they say, we're not going to get anything done. But if they're going to get anything done, this is the way they're going to have to do it. I guess I'll take that. I mean, I will take that scenario, that possibility. I think that is a hopeful way to look at the results of this election. Okay, I think we should stop on that hopeful note. I actually agree with you. I, I think that the, the fate of Ukraine was one of the key issues in this campaign. I don't know how many people voted on it. It was certainly top of my mind what it would mean to the future of Ukraine and of, uh, of democracy if the Republicans took control of Congress. And I think that the as uh, Kathy Young wrote in the bulwark, I think the prospects of a cutoff have been, you know, substantially reduced as a result of that. So next week we'll talk about um, the United States Senate, what it means uh, for Democrats to control the Senate, um, whether or not uh, having 51 votes is a really, really big deal, 51 votes as opposed to 50 votes in the Georgia runoff. We'll save that for next week. Okay, Will? All right, Charlie. See you then. 
The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>